So hello and welcome to Dairy Matters, a podcast about Irish dairy, how it gets produced, why it's important to Ireland Inc and most importantly about the people involved in making it happen. Dairy farming is something that's been taking place here for 4,000 years, something that employs 60,000 people and something that delivers 5.2 billion euros to the Irish economy every year. It's time we all knew a bit more about it and the quality produce it delivers to chiller cabinets around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the National Dairy Council. I'm Jeremy Probert, and it's a genuine pleasure, listeners of mine, to be joined today by John and Sally McKenna. The McKennas, uh, as if they needed any introduction, are multi-award winning authors, journalists and broadcasters, the force behind McKenna's Guides, and of course, authors of a book that was shortlisted for Best Irish Cookbook at this year's Irish Food Writing Awards. A book quite simply entitled Milk. John, Sally, welcome. Hello. Thank you very much. Let me get started by giving you a statistic from some recent NDC research. Uh, one in four Irish people claim to know a dairy farmer personally. Uh, now, I know you, that you immersed yourselves in dairy for this book, but do either of you have any dairy heritage? Is there any farming in the family? Well, I, I was born in Africa and I was brought up in Fiji, so I don't think I can claim to any of that. But we do live actually in a farmland. We bought a field from a farmer and we build a house and that's where we live in West Cork. So every morning, if we drive out the car, we're likely to meet a cow or a sheep or a donkey. And uh, so it, it feels like we're very much immersed. John has no farming background either, but I think we do, we do live it at present. I'm a, I'm a city boy. I'm from Belfast. Uh, went to college in Dublin. Uh, we moved down to West Cork 30 years ago and we did so having made the acquaintance of farmers and cheesemakers in particular, fish smokers, artisans was a term that was, wasn't widely used then, but we have used ever since. I mean, that was our introduction to people who work with the land and, if you like, create its produce and who, if you like, introduced us to its riches. So that was a very transformative thing to see people who worked with their hands, worked with the land maintained animals, maintained herds, whether it was for goat's milk or cow's milk or sheep's milk, particularly in, in relation to cheese making. And frankly, they were genuinely eye-opening because I had been a lawyer. And when I met these people, I thought they were genuinely extraordinary individuals. They were so skilled and they were so wise. So we started writing about them. And 30 years later, we're still writing about them. And so it was that that sparked off your obvious and almost visible passion for food, uh, or was food something that you'd already had in the background, even when you were lawyering in Dublin? We were, um, <laughs> I was, as they say in the parlance, I, I was largely a briefless barrister. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of work to do, so we could go backpacking around different parts of the world. Uh, during the summertime, during the long vacation. And we got more and more immersed in the food cultures that we discovered in Europe, in, in Asia, and consequently began to ask ourselves, well, you know, the food, the food that we're eating, we're living in Dublin. Who makes it? Where does it come from? And we quite casually said to a friend who we knew had a, a little publishing company, we, we'd like to write a book on the sources of Irish food. We didn't want, actually want to write about restaurants. We actually wanted to write about the fact that we were seeing specialist cheeses and other uh, small-scale products in specialist shops and supermarkets. And we were curious to know, well, who, who actually is behind that? Who invented that? 
And this person, again, <laughs> casually said, well, okay, you write it and I'll publish it. So we bought a car for £100. It was an old Renault 4 with a shift stick up high on the gearbox, on the on the fascia. And we said to a lovely mechanic, Malachi, uh, we said, Malachi, what do you recommend? And Malachi said, prayer. But he fixed the car and we got going. And in the space of about eight months, we produced the first ever book, uh, which was called The Irish Food Guide. And that was our attempt to try to put the faces behind the foods that we had been discovering bit by bit. And what we discovered was that those people were working away quietly in almost every corner of the country. It was an interesting time because there was no internet at that time. This was about 30 years ago. So you actually didn't know where these people were, but we knew they were out there. So we just drove up to a town and we would go to maybe the health food shop and go through the fridges and find a little goat's cheese and say, who makes this? And then go off up and down a hill and see if we could find them. And we put together like a jigsaw of all these people, but it's such a different climate now. Everybody's on Instagram and our our job is sort of, it's opposite now. We're almost filtering too much information rather than finding, um, finding what was, you know, hidden before. And that first book was, as you say, 30 years ago. And since then, you've written countless. In fact, you couldn't tell me how many there were when I asked. One of these days, we'll count them. <laughs> but, but they've been, they're, they're obviously uh, award-winning in the UK, here in Ireland, I'm presuming around the world as well. Perhaps you could tell me a bit about the Milk book that was shortlisted for the Irish Food Writing Awards and how that came about. It was a lockdown project, actually, which was very good. Um, we we talked to the NDC and we we came up with the idea that there was not really a book about milk in Ireland. So we proposed to write one and we got in touch with every, a lot of wonderful chefs, some of the best chefs in Ireland to ask them would they give recipes. And we got in touch with the photographer and his partner, food stylist. And we sort of did that on Thursday. And by Monday, we had a whole stream of recipes and the first photograph um, because everybody was at home and everybody was ready to work. So it was a mixture of recipes, which is kind of what I was specializing in. And John John wrote the history of milk and spoke to the farmers and gave the, the, the raw material of the product, information behind it. Yes, I mean, I had been doing some work for the NDC and the more I discovered about milk and researched it as a topic, the more I realized that it was something that we all took for granted. It's in every fridge, in every kitchen, in every house, in every county, in every town in Ireland. And it struck me that we didn't really look very much beyond what we did with milk. And then when I began to dig into the history of it, I realized that we had been drinking milk 4,000 years ago in, in, in County Meath. We also didn't, I felt, appreciate the milk we had. And the more work I did, the more I realized that Irish milk is probably the best milk in the world. It's not just a a wonderful liquid. It's not just uh, an enjoyable drink. It's actually a magic liquid because when you put a cow in a field on grass, on a good pasture, looked after by uh, somebody who is the third or fourth or fifth generation of a family farm, you actually get something very special. You get a milk which is extremely healthy. You get a milk with wonderful organoleptic uh, qualities from which you can make the best butter, the best cheeses, the best yogurts. 
And the more I talked to the farmers, the more I also respected the care that they put into it, their stewardship of their fields. And they know their fields like they know the back of their hands and also their stewardship of their herds. And I, I really just came to the conclusion, not just that milk, as I say, is this magic liquid, which is this incredible shape shifter, but also that here in Ireland, we have the best milk in the world. We have Grand Cru milk. Uh, if the best wines in the world come from Burgundy or Bordeaux, the best milks in the world come from Ireland. Simple as that. So what's that going to mean? Because we talked about Grand Cru milk and we talked about farmers selling chateau bottled milk, if you like, from uh, from their own farms in their own vans. What's that going to mean in the future going forward? I think an increasing number of uh, dairy farms will, in addition to selling milk to the creamery, will actually uh, keep a percentage, just as cheesemakers do now. They may have a herd, they sell some to the creamery, they keep some for making cheese. I think we're going to see more liquid milk sold in terms of its characteristics. In other words, it's got particularly good organoleptic qualities. It's got vital things like CLAs, conjugated linoleic acids, which we need for our health. So I think we're going to see more, what I would say, site-specific, rather like a wine. You know, if, if I'm selling um, my Burgundy, I'm going to argue that it has the best site in Burgundy. I think we're going to get farmers arguing that their um, the, the places where they farm are so ideally suited to uh, dairying and that, that the grass composition is so good that their milk is is actually should command the higher price. And to be honest, what is interesting about this is about 40, maybe nearly 50 years ago, Myrtle Allen of Ballymaloo House organized a milk tasting, just an informal ad hoc thing. And the milk that came out top was from the McCroom Dairy from North Cork. And if you talk to anybody up there, talk to the farmers, talk to the cooks, they'll tell you that many of those old pastures have never, ever been under the plough. So you're talking about complex, ancient grasses, and you're talking about extraordinary milk. And I think we're going to see more of that in the marketplace. And interestingly, you see coffee shops now use um, milk and, and specify the type of milk that they put in their cappuccinos. Um, and I think we're going to see more, more milk uh, specified on menus and because people do realise that there is a difference between one milk and another. And this will have a, uh, we have to mention it, there'll be a knock-on effect in terms of the price the consumer pays. Yes, but I think the consumer will be happy to pay for it, you know. Um, we've had what I really think of as just a sort of diversionary scuffle over the last decade with so-called milks or fake milks. I mean, this morning in one of the English newspapers is a story of a firm raising seed capital to make milk, to make cow's milk without cows. Now, you can't do that, of course, because the fake milks are not milks, they're flavoured waters. And what people will pay for is what is emerging in research as the dairy matrix. In other words, it's the confluence of all the good things that you get from a healthy animal in a healthy pasture, milked on a small scale, and the fact that that milk is like a super milk. So people, in the same way that they will pay for health supplements or vitamin supplements, will actually be buying milk because of the way it's good for their microbiome, the way it's good for their skin, and the way it's good for their health. And also, when I was researching milk, one of the things that Dr. Patrick Wall pointed out was milk is actually good to, to slow down the aging process. 
And when you get to our age, this becomes very, very real thing to worry about. <laughs> it, it reminds me a little bit of seawater. Um, if you if you you know found out exactly what was in seawater and you put in sodium and you put in water and you put in various things like that and everything that was in seawater you you created and you put a fish in it the fish would actually die because they can't they've never worked out actually how to recreate seawater because man hasn't got there yet <laughs> so you know to to say that you can create milk now nah, I don't believe it <laughs> it happened to me once upon a time I. Uh, bought a bunch of lobsters, thought I'd keep them nice and fresh by putting them in salt water. No, anyway, but <clears throat> I think I think what, what what you just said about Grand Cru milk and the idea of it being a specialist product, which people will go and search out and be prepared to pay a premium for, is also part of the narrative at the moment, which is talks about globally changing diets, which are linked to climate change. And if people are eating less meat, people are choosing the foods that they eat, there will be a, a knock-on effect on, on emissions. That obviously is impacting here in Ireland at the moment, and the dairy industry is potentially under threat from climate legislation. You just said that Ireland's dairy is probably the best in the world. So how do, how do we square those two things? Well, I think we have to get back to uh, farms only having the right number of cows that the farm can manage. There are fra- many phrases in Ireland, in the old Irish, about, you know, oh, that field is worth two cows, that field is worth three cows, that field is worth four cows. It's the amount that the farm can actually manage. And I think when you increase things like, of course, what people say about dairy herds is the methane emissions. Uh, cow methane is quite different from uh, fossil fuel methane for a start. It's much more short-lived. So, you know, comparing the two is like comparing apples and oranges. They're not the same. But we already know from research that when you consider a really well-managed farm, the grass and the trees and everything else have a significant effect in taking the carbon out of the atmosphere. So I would believe that it will be possible with, it has to be optimum dairy farming, absolutely optimum, but it will be possible to continue to produce milk on a large scale, but to do so in a way that is actually completely environmentally sound, both for the bigger environment and for the local environment. Yes, and I don't I don't think we value our farmers enough in this country. It's like we don't we sit we see the bottle of milk in the fridge and we don't really think about it. It's just always been there. And there is a perception that farmers don't really think enough about the land, but it's so so misguided because when you start to talk and start to meet farmers you realize these people are their scientists they're environmentalists they understand water they you know they understand animals they're fantastic people and i believe we should have more faith in them and i think they will see us through and i think ireland is a food producing country with great farmers and uh, you know we should let that let that play out because that's what we're good at and indeed people are saying that if you curtail dairy farming here in Ireland, it will just go somewhere else. Yeah, and the danger of it going somewhere else is going to a mega farm uh, somewhere in the Americas where the environmental conditions are dire. The animal, I mean, I mean, American milks, for example, we all know, the, the animals are essentially superannuated milk tankers because they're fed drugs to increase the yield. Their uh, lifespan is extremely short because they're so completely stressed. 
what we have in Ireland is family-owned farms, and those farms are well-managed and they're appropriate to scale. So this means that from the point of view, like one of the things that people say, you know, oh, we have to cut methane, we have to get rid of the, uh, get rid of the animals. Well, let's think about animal welfare and the best way to manage those animals in a humane environment. And in many farming situations throughout the world, where you have 800 cows on a farm, 2,000 cows, 5,000 cows, when you have that enormous multiple, you have very poor environmental practices and you have very poor animal welfare. In Ireland, we have very high animal welfare and mostly very good environmental practices. So if it goes elsewhere, it will be worse. And this is why we need to keep reminding people that our milk really is the best. Because imagine if people said, for example, um, do you know what? We'll scrap Burgundy and we'll scrap Bordeaux and all there'll be in France is just red and white wine. People would say, that's ridiculous. What about the regionality difference? What about the regionality? What about the aspect, the terroir? We have all that. We have the terroir. We have the different grasses. Wicklow is not like Mayo. North Cork is not like North Antrim. The more we value that, the more we have site-specific milks, the more we'll have higher yield. We will be price makers rather than price takers. And the more I think people will respect farmers and realize that what we do what Irish dairy farmers do, they actually do better than anybody else. And it's about pride. Um, it's about having pride in your country's heritage uh, and pride in something that is genuinely a jewel in the crown. Uh, just going back to the uh, topic of methane, which is very much uh, the subject of a lot of hot air at the moment. Uh, yes, and there's all sorts of debate about it. And it is quite complex. And Frankly, uh, we're not going to discuss it here. But what we are going to discuss is the fact that there was some research that showed a particular type of seaweed, when fed to cows, could improve their digestion or reduce the amount of methane. Now, Sally, I know you know something about seaweed. You wrote a book on it, didn't you? I did indeed. I wrote a book called Extreme Greens, which is partly a cookery book and partly a field guide. So if you're actually going down to the coast, it will tell you what you're looking at and how to find it and where it is on the shoreline. And the, the, the seaweed in question that has been fed to cows is dillusk, which is actually regarded by a lot of vegetarians as a very similar food stuff to bacon. In fact, it's a sort of vegan bacon as well as a, a methane reducer in cows. And it's also, it's very tasty, uh, umami product. So um, seaweed is the way to go. I didn't know about this. I didn't know that's what it was called but there's a recipe in the milk book using that seaweed, isn't there? There is. I think it's the cheese and dillisk tart, mm -hmm. as far as I remember. Mm -hmm. So, And it's a lovely recipe because seaweed, like milk, seaweed gives an umami flavour and a texture to um, anything you put into it. So if I see a seaweed cheese, I buy it straight away because it's, what the seaweed does is it amps up the quality of, of, of anything you put it with. It's like a, a marker pen. And milk is, is somewhat the same. You know, it, it gives this underlying deliciousness and craveability, I think is what they, they the word they use. There was a lovely expression um, used just recently by um, uh, a UK food writer who was uh, waxing ecstatically about a meal in Dublin, which featured multiple courses, uh, but also featured a lot of cream and butter. And uh, she, she, as I say, rap, went into a rhapsody about the cashmere effect of using really good dairy products like cream and like butter, the richness they give. 
You know, one thing that people also need to realize about milk is more people are saying, I want whole foods, I want complete foods, I want natural foods. And in this regard, milk is of vital importance, not just for babies and children, not just for adolescents as they develop their bone structure, not just for aging people who want to maintain their health. Uh, but the problem is, for more than 50 years, we have had a demonization of fats. People have said you need to have a low-fat diet. We now realize that the low-fat diet is a nonsense. But unfortunately, it's one of those zombie beliefs it lurches around the place. It re-emerges. You cannot seem to kill it. It's like supply-side economics. It's rubbish, but you can't end it. So people have got to realize, yes, milk contains fat, but your brain is 80% fat and you can't live without fats. So if you want the good fats, it's in pastured milk. It's, it's an unassailable truth. And I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm old enough to remember gold top milk. Uh, you know, with and with, and the birds used to peck through the tinfoil to actually get the cream. Wonderful stuff. But so yes, I'm I'm wholly on board with you uh, there, John. Uh, Sally, I, I want to go back to you and the just just to explore the. Um, uh, you used the the term umami, but you also when, when we were talking just prior to this session, you talked about another Japanese term, didn't you? Yes, we, I did. And we were introduced to when we, we asked um, Takashi Miyazaki, who's a wonderful chef in County Cork. He has a couple of restaurants and we asked him for uh, something on milk. And he came up with a vinegar milk, which is a cheese and it makes a pudding. And he described the flavor and texture of milk as kokomi, which was actually new to me. But I lo we, we looked it up and it's one of the tastes. You know, we have this, the, 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 the tastes are um, salt, sweet bitter, umami, but a, a kukomi is another one of these tastes. And what it means is it's to do with the texture of milk. So, it, and it's, again, it's craveability, it's deliciousness. So, so it adds, what it adds to whatever you put it with, it adds kukomi and umami. So it's, it's an underlying taste and texture um, that makes food particularly delicious. The, the range of recipes in your book show how versatile dairy is you've got sections in there about what to do with milk things to be produced from milk you've also got a section about cheese now irish artisan if you like or farmhouse cheese dropped off a cliff really didn't it at one point in time and then was re it was all rediscovered in the early 80s was that right Yes, about about thirty years ago, and it was it's funny. It was rediscovered by women generally. There were there were this band of amazing women, and we were just beginning to write about food at that time. And the very first one was Veronica Steele, who made Malines cheese from one cow on the Bear Peninsula, and it was then sold to two restaurants, one of which had a Michelin star, and it became um, a famous cheese after that. And Veronica taught Jaina Ferguson. Who now make who made Gabine cheese, and she also taught Jeffa Gill, um, who makes Doris cheese. And at the same time, Helena uh, Helena Willems was making Coulet cheese, and you had Meg Gordon making goat's cheese, and Breda Maha was started Coulini, and the almost most famous of all, you had Jane Grubb, who started a cheese and called it Cashel Blue, and she used a knitting needle to pierce the cheese, to put the blue veining in it. And that became Cashel Blue. So there was, I'm, I'm sure I've missed out some, but there were these 
strong women all over the country and they started these farmhouse cheeses and it exploded and became the farmhouse cheese industry that we know and love today. Which is fantastic. I, I have to say, I, the more I immerse myself in Irish dairy, I find more and more roles being led by women, uh, women in farming, women in agri-science, women in cheese. I think it's really important as well that we remember and celebrate these people. I mean, in France, you have uh, Marie Havel, the um, Madame Camembert, Madame Camembert. She's the woman about 260 years ago who invented Camembert cheese. And I mean, there's statues put up to her in France and she's revered in France. John and I were once campaigning to get some of these women on the postage stamp in Ireland. You know, they need to be recognised, the people, these wonderful women all over the country who created an industry that now is is so much loved. So what we're saying is forget the 1916 rising, what we're talking about, the 1980s cheeses. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, a wonderful grocer from County Tipperary, uh, Peter Ward, once memorably said at a conference many years ago, he said, we have milk in our blood. And indeed we do, because, you know, we're reared on it. We have it all the time. We have it every day. And it it does occupy a special cultural place. It occupies a culinary space, but it also occupies a cultural space in our psyche. And we, we it, of course, it's important to see it as an industry, but at the same time, we need to see it as a cultural power and as something that can continue to deliver wealth to everybody in the country because the dairy industry is hugely successful even though it's run even though it's based on small farms it is the most extraordinary paradox because it's a global industry which is actually based on privately owned small farms if you go to the, go go far out into the world and tell people that that's the reality of irish dairy they won't believe you because they'll say what do you mean somebody with 80 cows is actually a part of this huge success story but it is true. And when I look, for example, at the way in which people like the Sheridan brothers now have established their expertise in affinage, in uh, taking cheeses from cheesemakers, ter- transforming them into different uh, end products using, you know, Kilkenny apple brandy or craft beer or just through extra maturation. Then you see actually that there's another industry that can be built here. On the, on the back of the successful farmhouse cheeses, you can build another specialist industry, and that's what the Sheridans are doing. And I think a lot more people could, could actually do that and would add another branch to, um, to, to how we see dairy. Because one of the most successful dairy brands is one which is very, very close to where we live here in West Cork. Glenillan Dairy, um, we actually were at the market when they sold their first ever country butter and yogurt 30 years ago. And what Alan and Valerie understood, to, when, which when nobody else did, was that milk offers you a multiplicity of products. And they, sell, they started with butter and yogurt and then went into cheesecakes and quark and everything else. And a farm that used to be two people up a hill in West Cork, if we were to go there now, there's probably 45 people working on that farm. And that can be replicated throughout the entire country. Uh, I'm just getting a note in my, my ear here, uh, which says that Glenillan make an awesome lemon cheesecake. They do. That's, that's from our <laughs> producer. Thank you very much for that, Craig. Moving back to the book, there's a mixture of recipes there. We've got recipes from incredibly well-known and established Irish chefs, 
And if I'm not much mistaken, we've got some McKenna recipes in there as well. Is that right, Sally? Indeed, we have a good mixture. We've got some old family recipes of our own and recipes from some of the people we admire around the country. And as I say, we had Takashi Miyazaki and we had Ahmed Deed. So they brought in, um, Ahmed wrote about his mother's yogurt recipe, which is actually one of my favorite recipes in the book. It's how to make this Turkish golden yogurt. And it's just like not any other yogurt you buy in Ireland. It's very rich and very thick. You can actually turn the jar upside down and the yogurt will stay <laughs> stay where it is. And if you had to choose, is there a favourite recipe in that book and you can't choose one of your own? Oh, gosh. Well, I love the bread recipes. I love all the bread recipes. We have a lovely batch recipe um, from Patrick of the Firehouse. Um, and we've, uh, well, the milk bread is actually our Japanese milk bread is our recipe. So I don't know whether that counts. Um, there's a lovely scone recipe. I mean, we've got a recipe for jambon, Irish jambons. Mm. Nobody quite knows where jambons came from, but they're definitely now Irish, even though they sound French. The sort of ham, ham, uh, ham pastry. So we have a lovely recipe for that. I think if I was going to pick one, and it's partly influenced by the fact that I admire him as a baker so much, Graham Herterick from Dublin, who is widely known as the cupcake bloke, invented the recipe for milk cereal cupcakes. And of course, everybody loves the milk that remains in the bottom of the bowl after you finished your cereal. And Graham takes that milk and turns it into cupcakes. And it's it's a sign of his genius, which is to take something we take for granted and then be able to render it in another form. He is he is the finest baker and he's the most inventive baker. And I, when, I, when he proposed that, I just thought he's out there. It's true to say that the sign of true genius in a chef is, as you've rightly said, being able to take something that perhaps everyone sees one way and seeing it in a different way and using it in a different way. And there are, I mean, one of the recipes, I was looking at it while I was listening to you talking, one of your recipes, or one of the recipes here, uh, is potato straw cake, which, and it's the photography. And and Sally, I'd like, I'd like you to talk to me about this photography because the photography is just so fantastic. When the photograph started to come in, like we were so excited. We have worked with Mike and Anne-Marie for goodness knows long, 30, nearly 30 years. Mm. We've done books, many books with them and book covers. And when we, had, when we knew we were going to be working on this project, they were the first people to ask. And Anne-Marie had actually been booked to work with Matt Damon on his movie in Dublin. And But because he was in lockdown, as everybody knows, in Dorky, she was not working, so she was available. So we literally got them straight away, which was an absolute joy. And we they were in lockdown, we were in lockdown. We couldn't, we all had our five mile radius. We could just go shopping. So all the book, it's it uses very normal ingredients because that's all we had, that's all we could get, and that's all they could get. So we would we would send them the recipe and we would have a little bit of back and forth. And sometimes they were sometimes they would do something with it that we just weren't expecting, but it was just like so much better than the way we presented it. Because Anne-Marie is a cook and, and Mike is a genius with the camera. So it's as much their book as it is anybody else's. You know, it's a showcase of what, what they can achieve, what they have achieved. And uh, I know they're very proud of it and we're very proud of, of their work in it as well. It's absolutely beautiful to look at. And I have to say, when you see a picture, uh, like it's a sign of um, of great photography and indeed great recipes. Uh, for me, when you look at the picture, you go, I must make that and soon. Um, so, but um, John, I just want to 
pick up on something that you said about doing things differently and making some making something unique, making something you hadn't ex- hadn't expected. So it's not quite the same, but uh, we were talking, and you talked to me about deep fried fish bones. Yeah, it's um, everybody, pretty much everybody has a fairly profound fear of fish bones. Uh, we have the fear of choking. Uh, a lot of people when they're young will be shown how to perform the Heimlich maneuver, which is how you uh, persuade somebody to uh, eject a fishbone. And um, But one of the interesting things about the people who, who, who can think outside the box, uh, there's a wonderful restaurant in Cork, Goldie. Uh, Ashling Moore is the chef. She's only 26 years old. And one of the things that you might very well be offered, if you were to go there this evening, one of the things you might very well be offered is a little snack to open dinner will be a little plate of deep fried fish bones. And if you say that to people, they just, you, you know, everybody sort of draws a breath. But actually, when you have the technique, as Ashling has, she's adapted it from the Japanese, who were the people who d- discovered this. Um, once you cook the fish bones twice, the fish bones actually become very crunchy. So there's no chance that the, the bone, the minute you bite the bone, the bone breaks. And you get this wonderful umami, crisp. Um, it's like the nicest crisp you've ever eaten. And you sort of think, you know, you just say to yourself, I'm eating fish bones. What am I doing? I'm eating fish bones in a wonderful restaurant. And, you know, you know that's symptomatic of the best cooks in Ireland now. Um, we, 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 you know, food is an entertainment. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a part, very dynamic part of, the, of our modern culture. We've been lucky to see Ireland improved dramatically in all the time we have written about it. The food culture gets better every single year. Um, and somebody like Ashling in, in Goldie and Cork is an example of somebody, even though she's so young, she's only 26, but she's just pushing the boundaries of what you can do. And it doesn't matter what ingredients you give her. She will reinvent it, reimagine it. And that, for us as people who've been writing about food for 30 years, that creativity and that sense of imagination is what inspires us to keep on writing about Irish food because that's what, you, you know, we don't write about food and restaurants to tell you some swanky place to go on your honeymoon or, or your anniversary. We actually want to introduce you to the people whose work makes a difference to our quality of life. Uh, Ashling is one of those people, but I think all of the people who we feature in the book, the recipes we feature, they have that in common. They, they think outside the box, they want to present something radical and something innovative. And we are the lucky beneficiaries of that. Coming, coming to a sort of conclusion, I think, here, I'm, I'm sort of really interested to find out what your, not favourite foods, but you eat out, obviously, quite a lot. Or you probably haven't been during, during lockdown, obviously, but now, now that you um, are able to. Uh, and obviously, I'm sure you experience all sorts of different types of restaurants, cuisines, approaches. What would you choose if you had to? What would be your sort of go-to in terms of a meal? I think we value restaurants that really appreciate terroir and um, terroir, they would call themselves terroir restaurants. So places that speak of the place that they're in and use the things that grow locally 
that to us that's actually very very interesting and very enjoyable and i don't think i think people dismiss the fact that I, because ireland is a small country we just we don't regard the food as regional and i think that's wrong i mean we do we have a sunny southeast um which is great for strawberries and we've got rocky mountains in the northwest which goats can roam on and make fantastic goat's milk and the rich milk of of west cork and the seafood of the of you know of of the Louth and compared mm-hmm. to dingle so we do have regionality in food and i think we would love to see restaurants bringing more of that out in their menus um because we love to travel around Ireland and we go for one particular thing. You know, we, we will have something in mind when we go to Galway or when we go to Wexford. Um, and, and it's great when a rest, when you find it in a restaurant. Yeah, I mean, for me, where you get the perfect conjunction of um, a really good producer and a really good terroir, um, it, just to name two things, you know, you, the, the Galway oyster, there are wonderful oysters now, but the, the West Coast oysters are simply extraordinary. And one of the really happy things of the last five years is we used to say an oyster is an oyster. Now you will ask for a specific oyster from a specific place or a specific producer by name. And um, so that's oysters to start. And then for my main course, um, it has to be Ackle Island lamb, really, because you have a lamb here that is in rough and rugged mountain territory. And then at the right time, the sheep will wander down through the main street of Kiel. Um, and they will see the, the seaweeds being washed up after a rough, rough night. And they'll eat the seaweeds. And that lamb meat to me is like nothing else in the world. Absolutely nothing else. Um, and then obviously a really good Irish whiskey just for I thought, you, I thought you were going to say an Irish cheese then yeah, <laughs> an Irish cheese. oh and Dur- Duras cheese uh, Duras to me is an extraordinary cheese not just because we live near there um, and then um, then a, ni- a nice Irish pot still whiskey simple 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 things the, the way you talk about it I mean I'm 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 sold I'm sold. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Fond, fond memories of the Galway Oyster Festival, I have to say. Um, I've not had the Ackle Island lamb, but that's on my to-do list now. Um, and Duras is also my favourite cheese as well. So um, it, it's a winner. John and Sally, Sally and John, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. You've shared so much with us. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say it again. The book, the milk book, is genuinely fantastic to look at uh to read informative and brilliant recipes so you know thanks very much for that um and thank you for your time thank you so much thank you very much dairy matters is produced by 4tc on behalf of the national dairy council